Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we head to the Big D and talk to Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson. This is an interview you won't want to miss. The mayor is a straight talker and running one of the hottest cities in the country. We talk about his journey from an impoverished Dallas neighborhood to the Ivy Leagues and back to his hometown. We talk about how he's lowered violent crime, fought corruption, grown economic opportunity, We also talk about how and when to buck the establishment and stand on principle. I've always respected Mayor Johnson, and this interview sealed it. He's one of the country's most honorable leaders. Enjoy. Mayor Eric Johnson, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be talking to you today. You too, Ryan. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start. How's your city doing as we emerge, hopefully, out of the pandemic and uh, economic crises and every other hurdle we've had in local government over the last couple of years? I'm almost embarrassed to say how well we're doing, um, (laughs) given all that's going on in the world and certainly all that's going on in, in the country. Dallas is doing extremely well. I mean, almost any way you look at this, Dallas is is really a a success story coming out of this pandemic. Our economy has recovered faster than the rest of the nation. Our jobs have come back faster than the rest of the nation. As far as a top 10 American city, we're the only one who saw our violent crime go down last year, um, which is awesome because that means people's lives. Violent crime is is really um, something that's near and dear to me in terms of trying to get that under control and always be pushing that down because you're talking about people's lives. And we actually have had a lot of success with some of our initiatives and in getting crime down here, despite the national trend in the other direction. So now, to be honest with you, Ryan, I'm very, very happy with the direction things are going here. I have a lot of questions because I have people here in California that are uh, packing their bags and heading towards Dallas because of some of these successes. So let's start. Let's start with make sure they know that there's no beach in Dallas, <laughs> but there are a lot of great reasons to come otherwise. But there is no beach. Fair enough. There's no beach here. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you guys are working on it. So tell me, let's let's start with public safety because it is a national conversation right now. Uh, and Dallas's numbers are a real highlight and standout for how to reduce violent crime. Can you talk about what you've done that's worked and what other cities should be looking at? Look, I want to make sure that I frame this properly for the, the rest of the mayors in the country and other people um, who live other places. I understand that crime is complex. It's hard um, to lower violent crime. Uh, It takes a lot of work and those results aren't always instant. And even when you start to see numbers go in a direction you like, they can turn around on you very quickly. And so we're not um, by any means um, on a victory lap here. 
And we don't mean at all to, um, you know, sort of stand in some sort of uh, position of being able to wag our finger at the rest of the country and tell everybody else what they ought to be doing. But we do believe that what we've been doing is effective, has been effective, and could be effective other places. And therefore, we're interested in, in sharing that with others. But definitely not from a position of arrogance at all or a position of smugness and or believing that it could, it, you know, it has to continue to go in this direction. It doesn't. I mean, crime is really hard um, to keep moving in the right direction. Uh, over a, a long period of time. But the basic uh, answer to your question, Ryan, is we didn't allow ourselves, at least I didn't, and then my council and, and my, the city government um, sort of followed my lead on this, thankfully. Um, wasn't always super easy, <laughs> but we didn't allow ourselves to be forced into uh, one corner or the other in terms of this discussion about defund the police or back the blue. We just didn't do it. We, we, I refuse to allow um, people's lives to be put at risk for political gain by taking advantage of the division that exists out there between folks who think that the police are horrible and all uh, doing a terrible job and, need, and these departments need to be dismantled and defunded, or people on the other side who believe police can do no wrong and the answer to every problem is just more money, more money, more money for the police. The reality is much more complex. And I said in Dallas, we're going to take a kitchen sink approach. We're going to do everything that has been shown to be effective in reducing violent crime in our city. We're, that's what we're going to do. And so some of those solutions are law enforcement focused and do involve funding your police department at the appropriate levels. But some of those things have nothing to do with law enforcement at all. It has to do with asking the community to do more. And we did those as well. And it's been working. And so that's really what we did, right? And we just we did not choose one or the other. We chose both and as opposed to either or. Can I ask, because I think uh it'd be it's obviously a national conversation as well for the especially among Democrats. So how as mayor do you keep the focus? Because you're exactly right. Like there's no this idea that there's a single answer to anything um, and that we should all be ideologically driven versus the complex realities on the ground. How as mayor did you did you keep your city out of that black and white deba debate and decided to focus on on the, you know, on the intricacies and the nuances of, of public safety in a big city? So the mayor of Dallas is elected on a nonpartisan basis. That in and of itself doesn't mean much because we have plenty of mayors in this country who are elected on a nonpartisan basis, but choose to um, identify very closely with one party or the other. And in a lot of ways, once you've done that, uh, it's very it, you make it harder on yourself to diverge with party orthodoxy or party platforms or just prevailing wins in your party. I made a very conscious effort when I became mayor. I had been a state legislator for a decade uh, serving in the Texas House as an elected Democrat. I made a concerted effort and was very public and very open and very uh, transparent about the fact that if I was elected mayor, I was not going to govern as a Democrat. I wasn't going to govern as a Republican. I was going to govern as the elected mayor of all 1.4 million Dallasites, and you would not have any idea what party I was in based on what I was telling you. Um, I wasn't going to be talking about my party affiliation. I was going to be talking about the issues that matter to people in Dallas, and I was going to govern that way. And uh, that made it easier for me um, to make the kinds of decisions I needed to make 
when this issue of defund the police came up and the public safety issues came up. Now, if you choose to govern differently, if you choose to be associated more with a party, you probably have a harder time making those decisions. But that in and of itself is a decision. So I'd say it was a two prong decision. One is to govern in a nonpartisan way, which, again, there are some political benefits if you're thinking about, I guess, running for another office at some point on a partisan ticket to behaving as mayor in a more partisan fashion, being more closely aligned with some of the partisan organizations. But I chose to govern in a nonpartisan way. Uh, you know, I've, I've been a member of the Democratic Party my entire life. That's not a secret. Anyone who can, you know, wants to Google that can find that out. But I don't lead with that. And so what I've done is since I've become mayor, um, when issues have come up, I've just said, you know, what is the right thing to do here in terms of the policy? What do I think will actually achieve the goal? And on public safety, it became very quickly evident to me that you were not going to reverse your violent crime numbers, particularly with the, the trend line we were seeing across the country by cutting your police department budget just for the sake of cutting your police department budget. And that was what I was seeing happening. And that was some of the rhetoric. And I just had to take a stand against it and say, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to be some rough sailing. And I did have activists protesting outside of my house. Um, people tried to make my life very uncomfortable, um, frankly. And that 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 opposition came from the left. But I, I stood firm because I believed in the end, the results would vindicate the action. When people saw the crime numbers going down, that, that they would say, okay, uh, that was the right decision. And that's exactly how it's played out. That's exactly how it's, it's played out. We, 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 we did things on the law enforcement side that everybody understands, you know, funding, you know, your salaries for your officers and, you know, paying for their squad cars and things like that. But the more interesting piece is the stuff we did on the non-law enforcement side um, that I don't think gets enough attention. Um, but we, we did a lot of things involving, uh, violence interrupters and focusing on blight remediation and lighting improvements and social emotional learning in our schools and things that have contributed to our success on violent crime too. So um, that that's how I was able to do it. I think it's just that that's been my governing style since I got in the office. I want to talk a little about that governing style because I've uh, known you for a long time and watched watched your leadership, and I've always been struck that you've you you relentlessly. Uh, honest with uh, folks when things are working or when they aren't working. Um, and you also sort of are, you reject the simple sort of, you know, soundbite tweet uh, <laughs> answers to, to difficult public policy issues. Does that, where does that come from? And how do you think that's impacted your leadership um, in, in Dallas and then, you know, nationally among, among, big city mayors and, and other mayors across the country? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question in a setting like this, but I've given it thought because I've had to talk about it with my you know inner circle and my friends and family, and I've had to think about it for myself. So I actually know the answer to this question, but I've never had anyone ask me. So this is fun because I get to actually, I guess, say it um, you know outside of the family. But I really believe it comes from two things primarily. One is my mom. My mom just has... Um, a strength and a a faith and a and a belief that 
a person should stand up for what they believe in and stand up for right, even if they have to stand alone. She used to always tell me that. She goes, Eric, you have to be willing to stand all by yourself sometimes if you really believe in something, even if everyone else is saying sky's purple, sky's red. If you if you believe it's blue, you got to be okay with that and say that and let the chips fall. So she really taught me from a young age just to be comfortable with being in the minority or even being in a minority of one. And I just, I internalized that. That's number one. And then number two, I think my, my uh, upbringing, I grew up pretty religious. I grew up in a small Christian denomination, the Church of Christ. Uh, and the Church of Christ has never had a numerical um, uh, majority of, of any community it's ever been in. It's, been, it's sort of a small but proud group of folks. And we've always had to be willing in a lot of ways within sort of the Christian community to stand up for our beliefs and explain ourselves uh, you know, in, in a way that I think just as a kid, I just was comfortable with not being in the, the big group or the majority group or in the popular group. I, I just grew up being comfortable with, you know, this is what we believe. This is what we're about. And um, you, know, you, you believe it's right. So you do it. And so I've never existed politically as someone who needed um, to necessarily um, be comfortable all the time or who needed to feel felt the need to to always um, sort of sugarcoat things to to gain popularity I felt like when you discover something um, is wrong with the system you, you have to point that out and try to fix it even if it's going to make people uncomfortable and I've had that conversation a lot since I've been at city hall I've discovered a lot of things that don't work the way I think they should or the way the way people in the public think they work and I've said about trying to fix some of those things and it's made a lot of the people whose lives have gotten very comfortable working in this bureaucracy and who sort of uh, count on people's ignorance about how dysfunctional some things are it's made them uncomfortable because they're like well you know you should be more, you should be on the team. And on the team means never admitting uh, when we're wrong or never admitting when there's inefficiencies or things that we can do better. And I don't think that's what being on the team means at all. I just, I wasn't, again, I wasn't raised that way. To me, being on the team means, man, if there's things we got to do to get better, we got to, we got to call those things out and, and then do them to, and get better. So that's really where it comes from. It's just how I was raised. And it's it's probably in a lot of ways um, pampered me politically. I, I probably don't um, I probably don't get the invites to participate in some of the things that I would if I were more of a just unabashed cheerleader for everything that either my party was doing or that the level of government I was serving at, you know, whether it was the legislature or city halls doing. But that's just not how I choose to live my life. And it gives me a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction and I sleep really, really well at night um, by just doing what I think is right all the time. I, for one, appreciate it. I think we need more people talking about the complexities because it's it's a disservice to our communities and to our country to pretend like there are simple, easy solutions to any of the challenges facing us. And I think your uh, nuanced um, and honest responses are, are of real value. I want to talk about how you... Um, are taking on some of the entrenched uh, problems, uh, specifically recently with ethics reform. But first, I mean, I think you talked about your upbringing, and it is a remarkable story um, that that is tied to uh, both, you know, your 
talents, but also to your city. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, your journey of how you, how you found yourself where you are today and, um, and the, the, the important moments along the way that, that informed your, you know, your life choices and the choice to go into public service? I'm going to try to be as brief as I can about that because I've just recently <laughs> even gotten comfortable talking about my upbringing at all and how I got here at all because it's another sort of trait of the Church of Christ is, is it's pretty self-effacing and kind of a austere kind of a really under the under the the radar kind of a of a faith. So I, I wasn't you know I was taught not to brag or taught not to talk about yourself too much or anything like that. So. I definitely am getting more used to storytelling, um, telling my personal story, because I understand that it helps other people to know what other people have been through. So I'm getting more comfortable with it. But can I just say that um, it wouldn't be a worse thing if your church went out and, you know, got some more members of Congress to join it? That would that may be a better good thing for all of us. You know, I'll I'll pass it on to my (laughs) to my pastor, you know. Maybe we need to get more into that line of work of recruiting candidates. But in all seriousness, though. You know, I, I grew up um, without much money at all. Uh, my family um, actually came to Dallas uh, after World War II. When my on my mom's side, my grandfather got discharged from the army honorably and moved his wife and then uh, one-year-old son um, to Dallas. And they moved into a housing project that had just opened um, in Dallas, and that's where they started raising my mom. And she was she's the second sibling. And then uh, her uh, two um, younger siblings in the housing projects there. And our family's been here ever, ever since. I grew up in that same neighborhood where that housing project was and went to our local public school um, for a year before I had a school teacher who took a real interest in me and thought that I would benefit from a, a more academically challenging environment than, than she could provide me. And her first solution was just a petition to have me advanced within the school grade-wise. So I was in the first grade there and got advanced to the second grade and then the third grade within the same school year. And at that point, she decided to take it upon herself to figure out if there's anything else that could be done. And she discovered this program that was run by the Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Dallas. But back then, it was just the Boys Club. The Boys and Girls Club had merged together. And uh, that program actually um, went about trying to identify talented kids from low-income neighborhoods paying for them to take the admissions test um, by providing fee waivers for the test itself to be tested for admission to the, these um, private and parochial schools. And then once a kid um, t- was tested, if they scored high enough to be accepted to any of the schools in the area, uh, whichever school the kid and the, you know, the parents and the school agreed was the right school for the kid, the Boys and Girls Club took it upon themselves to provide the transportation to get these kids all the way from their inner city schools to these uh, far suburban schools in some cases, or, or, or I should say uh, in, in Dallas, basically, um, the school I attended is in a far north suburb, but most of the other schools were, were in uh, the city of Dallas, but far away from the inner city. They provide the transportation and they actually also then help negotiate financial aid um, for the students. And so I was able to participate in that program because of the teacher I had in my local public school taking it upon herself to do all this research. She found this program. I was tested, got into a couple of schools. My parents picked the one that was co-ed that they thought maybe someday my little sister might attend if, if it worked out for her. And uh, I attended that school um, for 11 years, starting in the second grade. 
And that began my whole life changing uh, journey, which I'd say is primarily attributed to um, education. So graduated from uh, that prep school, went on to Harvard, then went on to law school and graduate school um, at Princeton and UPenn, and then came back to Dallas, started practicing law. And the neighborhood I grew up in that I just, just described, the state rep for that area was actually indicted for some corruption issues related to their serving in office, but had the support of the Democratic Party establishment at the time and was running for re-election for the second time under indictment. And the second time she filed to run, I said, you know what, if no one's going to challenge her, I will. And no one wanted to. So I did it. And the party establishment, to my surprise, actually rallied to her support again. (laughs) They didn't endorse me at all. Um, They endorsed the incumbent. And I ran a race against the sitting incumbent and ended up winning 75% of the vote. And then she pled guilty uh, and went off to federal prison. And I went off to the legislature and I served there for a decade. So that's kind of how I got into public service. (laughs) Um, And then I ran for mayor. Basically, um, after our last mayor was term limited out because the, the field that I saw forming for that position didn't have, I think, the vision for Dallas that I did in terms of what I thought the city really needed. And so, I, you know, I was in a position in my life where where that made sense to come back home from Austin and, and you know, focus more on on being here in Dallas with my wife and kids. And I ran for for mayor as the ninth person to file in a nine person race. Um, I, it, it was pretty much a surprise to everyone. Every newspaper article written about it said we had no idea he even knew where City Hall was, let alone that he was interested in being, you know, in running for mayor. Uh, so it pretty much took everybody off guard. And I end up winning. Um, so that's how I got here. It's, it is an amazing story. And it also, I mean, it goes to show why you have some independence when you're talking and that and that you've sort of done these, you made these runs on your own terms, which for those out there who are listening and maybe thinking about running for office and are worried about not having establishment support, I think your story shows both the opportunity that you can still win without the establishment support, but also that there's a freedom to it when you sort of run on your own terms and hold your values. Frankly, the last thing I'll say about that, I think you raise a great point. For anyone who is thinking about it, you know, it is a choice people have to make. And, you know, parties exist for a reason and parties are are good and you know, there's nothing wrong with parties. I, I kind of wish we had more than two of them to, in that or, you know, at least more options to reflect more of the range within the two parties. I think within the two major parties, there's such a range these days. Um, so I don't I'm not a, I don't hate parties. But what I what I do hate sometimes, I think, is the the over-reliance on parties um, to access the ballot and for people to sort of rely too heavily on parties and not enough on their own personal brands and beliefs. Because I do think that what people maybe don't have enough confidence in or don't believe in, but should, is that there are more people out there than you think who think the sort of quirky thoughts that you have that don't fall neatly within either party. There, there's sufficient support out there for folks who are more nuanced than I think either of the parties currently allow for. 
you just have to find the right office at the right time to run for to for those views to to come out. And I think you'll find that there's support for them. And that's what has happened to me my entire career. I mean, I, I just have never been what you would consider to be a great member of, of my party from the standpoint of just, you know, go sit in the corner and cast your vote according to the party line. And I've pushed, pushed and pushed on my party to in ways I thought would make it better. And so I earned a reputation at some point for, um, you know, being so focused on ethics reform, being so hard on corrupt Democrats and wanting the local political party to to sort of shape up its act. But my attitude with that was, well, I mean, that's what we should want everyone in both parties doing is policing their own and, and, and to put it, be putting the best candidates forward, period. We should, corruption is not an opportunity to circle the wagons. It's an opportunity to, to cull your bad apples out of the barrel. And I just, you know, I had these beliefs that are just very, I think, um, shared by many people with common sense. Um, and I think people should rely more on their common sense and have more confidence that that will be rewarded at the ballot box because it has been for me. I, I have never lost an election um, speaking directly to the people the way I think that they uh, appreciate. I have complete confidence in the voters. So let's talk about those ethics reforms that you're taking on and how you think what the response will be as you as you try to push them through. So my first crack at ethics reform was when I got to Austin. I, as soon as I arrived in Austin, I said, you know what? There's no reason why any state official who is convicted by a court of law of abusing the public trust, any type of uh, corruption should be collecting for the rest of their life a state-funded, taxpayer-paid pension. It's very straightforward to me. I thought that was a very simple idea. I said, there's there's literally no reason why the taxpayer should be paying your health care and a monthly stipend to you for the rest of your life if you've been convicted by court of having just built those same people. <laughs> and I was astonished at how hard that was. A lot of people told me it sounded like a great idea to them, too, when we talked about it. And they just assumed they would never get out of committee. I got it out of committee. Then they assumed they would never get it through the calendars committee, which was the committee that essentially is like the rules committee in Congress. It sets the debate schedule. They said, we'll never get out of there. Well, I got it out of there <laughs> and I got it to the House floor. And that's when people start to panic. <laughs> and uh, it, it did. And it never happened. And so it, it's never it's never um, it, it never occurred that we fixed that. And I said, you know what, any level of government I work at, I'm going to try to make the system better and work better for the people. And so when I got to become mayor, I came in on the heels of just one in a in a sort of series of city hall corruption scandals where people have engaged in some corrupt behavior here that has landed them in federal prison. I said, there's no way I'm going to be mayor and just pretend like that's not an issue. And I promised in my uh, inauguration speech that I would tackle it. And a lot of people before me had said that it was an important issue to them, too, and it had never really been taken on. And um, I made it a priority. And once we got past COVID, because during COVID, that was obviously my my focus was getting our city through that. But once we got through that, I turned back to it immediately and we got the strongest ethics reform passed in the history of the city and created an office of inspector general, which we've never had in the city to actually investigate corruption. Um, we, through complaints that other people make about corruption and determine which ones are valid 
complaints and which ones are kind of a just political, you know, how that works with ethics. Um, sometimes people will weaponize ethics codes for political gain, but we through the political claims and focus on the legitimate ones and then prosecute those claims. And if necessary, turn them over to the DA or the U.S. Attorney's Office. So we now have a, an actual licensed attorney who's a former state inspector general here in Texas, who's now our city's inspector general and is going to be a policeman on the beat uh, here at City Hall to help us weed out corruption here and hopefully once and for all. So um, not an easy reform to get done, not an easy vote um, to, to secure, but end up getting that done unanimously, unanimously, which was uh, astonishing to a lot of folks. So I'm happy with that result. And I think it's going to make Dallas a materially better place um, to do business and to live. It's amazing and a model for for so many other places. Uh, again, regardless of which party or who it impacts, just to, to establish that trust um, in government and create a culture of responsibility and and public service. What are your uh, What are your priorities now as you're um, you know as we emerge from COVID and you've got this ethics uh, done. You know, as as things look good in Dallas, how do you uh, how do you leverage opportunities and and address the challenge? Right. So public safety has to be your top priority at all times, because if you don't have that in place, everything else falls apart. If people don't think your city's safe. It becomes a really, really difficult sell that they should invest here, live here, work here, whatever. But that's moving in the right direction right now. Like public safety is not it's not solved, but it's 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 moving in the right direction. We've got a good data driven violent crime reduction plan from our new police chief who's doing a great job. We've got a great uh, set of recommendations out of my task force on safe communities that recommended the four things I mentioned before, the lighting improvements, the blight remediation, social emotional learning, and violence interrupter programs. That's all funded uh, in our city budget um, and is going in the right direction. So public safety is, is moving in the right direction. And my job there is to make sure it doesn't get derailed and make sure it doesn't stop moving in that direction. Make sure we don't slow down or take our foot off the gas there because we get complacent and think, oh, well, this is sort of solved. It's not. It's ne- Violent crime, again, is one of those issues where it's never solved. The minute you take your eye off of it, it starts to flare up again. So that's always going to be the top priority. But I would say this, coming out of COVID, our economic recovery is, is phenomenal. It's looking great. And I love the direction we're going there, but I would need to make sure that our city is poised for future growth. And I think the key there, and I started talking about this for the first time when I was a candidate for mayor, and no one on the in the mayoral race at that point had ever even uttered those words in the, in a in the campaign. Workforce development. I said this is going to be key because Dallas is very good and has had really pretty unprecedented success in luring companies and the jobs that are associated with those companies away from some other places, like maybe some places you're familiar with out in California. Maybe. Um, You know, we've been really good about that. And that's a good thing. And we should definitely be excited every time a Fortune 500 company wants to relocate to Dallas. And we've had a lot of success with that. But I said, we have not focused enough on the people who live here every day and have been here for generations, but have been sort of locked out of the prosperity because of poor um, educational options and lack of investment in their 
education and skills development. So they're sort of being left behind in this discussion. Texas is growing fast. Dallas is growing fast. But a lot of that growth is acquisitional growth. We're taking from other places. But what about the folks who are already here who are underemployed or unemployed who need to be retooled, reskilled, and then upskilled in some cases? Um, and then they can actually fill one of these many positions that we know go unfilled every single year in our local economy um, because of, of, frankly, a, a lack of, of properly trained um, workers. So that's become a major focus of mine. And I've uh, had a study that the Bloomberg Philanthropies Organization helped fund that um, has made some recommendations about what we can do. And one of those was to appoint a workforce czar, someone who can really oversee and coordinate this effort citywide. And I've done that. I've appointed someone who I think highly of, who is now helping us to figure out how to get everyone who's sort of working at this problem on the edges to really lean in on these recommendations and help us get our workforce to the point where we can say, truly, it is one of the best in the nation so that that in and of itself becomes a selling point for our city. And so we're not leaving people behind. Um, I grew up in a family that fits the definition of exactly the kind of folks I'm trying to help here. These are folks who have who worked their entire lives, but were never able to pull themselves away from their current job to get the skills they need to get a better one. And so that's the person I'm, I'm really uh, focused on with this effort. We've got a lot of focus already on trying to improve our and it does need improvement for sure, our K through 12 educational system, but there aren't that many folks out there who are really focused on what do you do for folks who are, you know, between the ages of 18 and, you know, and, and 50, you know, what, how do you focus on those folks to get them where they need to be? And that's what we're trying to do. How do you engage the community? Uh, you know, I think workforce development programs have, you know, come and go often, you know, they're, they're short-term funded. And so, uh, they sort of pop up and then they go away. How how do you engage the community to get them to believe that this was the that they need to invest their their time and energy into these programs and that they'll see a result when they when they do? Right. No, it's a great question. I think the phrase workforce development is is being replaced with upskilling and things like that because I think what people are starting to recognize is what we mean now by workforce development is a little different than what the term meant when I was growing up. Back then, when we talked about workforce development, what we often meant was unemployment agency. We, we, we were talking about taking people who were really unemployed and helping them work on their resume and helping them get in front of a computer where there was a database of jobs and trying to help them get an interview set up and making sure they had you know what they needed to go on an interview and, and get a job, like taking people out of the ranks of the unemployed and getting them a job. That is not actually what the key to the future is and what we're focused on here. What we are trying to do in this effort and what the Bloomberg funded study really helped bring into focus is that there are certain groups in our city, in particular, African-American males and Latino males. um, But um, there's a real disconnect between the folks who would benefit the most from this upskilling, like taking them out of a job that's paying them minimum wage or slightly above that doesn't really have any growth potential and has very little in the way of employee benefits and 
taking them away from that job just long enough to get them the certificate they need or the diploma or certification or associate's degree they need, 18 to 24 months maybe at the most, that would change their lives forever and change their families' lives forever. We know who the folks are who would benefit from this. And we know the organizations out there who are working on this in small ways. They're doing a program that's got 10 or 15 people in it, or they're, or they, you know, they're, they're focusing on some aspect of this, or they're providing the childcare piece. We're bringing that all together now. That's what the czar's doing. We're, we're now using the city's reach and influence to coordinate all of this so that we can move systematically larger numbers of folks from what I always called, uh, always heard called growing up and what I you know, am very concerned about. Uh, and I, fr- I frankly believe that we should be more concerned about uh, in this country, the working poor, folks who actually work, they have a job, they work, or they have multiple jobs. They work every single day, but they're still poor. There's not a whole lot of focus, or at least there's not enough, in my opinion, on those Americans, and certainly not on those folks in Dallas, on folks who need an opportunity um, to to work for better pay so they can move into the ranks of of homeowners and they can move into the ranks uh, of the middle class. And so that's really what this is about. It's about upskilling folks who are sort of post K through 12 um, who that certificate would really make a big difference in their income. And, you know, in some cases, doubling or more what they make a year. I think that's really smart. I mean, I think you're exactly right that we don't spend enough time um, thinking about the working poor. Uh, and it's that's probably where you can see the, the biggest and most uh, and the quickest impact um, that then sets, you know, both helps them, but also it sort of sh- it demonstrates a path right to prosperity. Um, for for others around them, yeah, absolutely. And you know, to me, that that's it's getting at the heart of what this country sh- is supposed to be about, and what it's always represented to me. Like, I I love the country. I, I love Texas. I love being a Dallasite. And what I've always loved about everywhere I've ever lived, um, you know, I, I just I feel like this place really you, you can you can. You can achieve whatever you want to, but you have to be given the opportunities. I couldn't have found that prep school on my own. My parents couldn't have found that prep school on their own. They had a kid, unbeknownst to them, that was capable of performing at that level. Once that was discovered, even that discovery wasn't enough to actually match them up with the opportunity. That took someone else, a teacher, caring enough to go out of their way, to go above and beyond their job description, to go and find a program that someone didn't have to create, but someone in the philanthropic world thought it was important enough to create, again, a voluntary act. And that confluence of events, those philanthropic efforts, plus my teacher's extraordinary effort, plus my hard work is what allowed me to achieve everything I've ever achieved. That's that was the opportunity that I needed. Every American's got a story like that in terms of what they could do if they had that confluence of opportunity and and, and that matching. But someone's got to do it, and that's what this workforce effort is about. It's about matching people with that opportunity that they otherwise would not know existed. Do the, How many people know, I happen to know this is a fact, this is the benefit of having 
American Airlines headquartered in your region and Southwest Airlines headquartered in your city. You learn something about aviation if you live down here. Um, you know, American Airlines is telling me that if we can find a person who's capable of just graduating from high school with that level of proficiency in math and science and whatnot, that an 18 to 24 month maximum airline mechanic program that's offered at most of our community colleges would be sufficient to get them a job that starts them in the sixty dollars to $70,000 range and that will be an over $100,000 a year job within a decade, will be a six-figure job within the day they walk in, plus a bonus because they're so hard to find. That's, a, that's an opportunity that's just waiting to be taken advantage of, but who knows it's there? Who knows it's there? And that's what American wanted to talk to me about. They were like, you know, can you use the mayor's office to help us elevate this to, you know, people's consciousness? Because this is not something you have to be, you know, an aeronautical engineer to do. You, you need to be able to graduate high school math. And so that's what I'm talking about. So I'm trying to extend those opportunities to as many people as I can. I can't wait to see it and then uh, steal it um, uh, here in our community, as 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 we often do. I want to wrap up with, um, let's say I hop on uh, one of those American or Southwest flights and I find myself in Dallas and I got 24 hours. What do you what do you recommend I do that uh, that? that maybe I, I wouldn't get necessarily from guidebooks, but it's the best way to get a feel for your city. Oh man, I love that question. <laughs> you know, I, I think we probably have um, some underrated uh, attractions here that don't get the attention that I think if, if that's if the way you phrase the question, I would say most people probably don't know that we've got a world-class, maybe the best in the country arts district um, we, we've got an opera house that's to die for. We've got a symphony hall that Business Insider Magazine ranked, I believe, uh, top 10 symphony hall in the world. I think only two American symphony halls on the list, Boston's and ours. Um, so the, the Arts District is amazing. Um, our food here, our food scene is incredible. So there's you can do just about every cuisine you can imagine here. And we have just a ton of great restaurants. And so uh, we were the Bon Appetit restaurant city of the year a couple of years ago. I mean, we've got great, great options here for food. Um, I think we have more uh, public green space and more cool parks and amenities than people uh, think of when they, when they think of our city. So I could take you to a place called Clyde Warren Park um, where you, I think you'd have a great time. And it's, a, it's where we were very creative in turning something that was once, um, you know, a, a just a freeway overpass that was a dividing line between a, 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 our central business district and sort of this, this developing area. And we built a park over a freeway. And it's become so popular that now we're about to do it again near our zoo to connect two communities that have been separated by an interstate highway. And frankly, if we got the money um, to do it with out of this, this, this infrastructure package, um, you know, from Washington, we would do that a third time if I had my way over in the South Dallas area of our city, connecting two communities that were separated there by Interstate 30. We would build a park over the freeway there. Actually, we would drop down the freeway to below grade and build a park over that. So uh, I would say, you know, the parks, the arts district, the food. So the quality of life things here are just amazing. 
Um, and if, you know, if you, it was football season, I might let you leave and go to the Arlington to watch a Cowboys game, but probably, probably recommend you stay in the city. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I'm hungry and, uh, and ready to go hang out in the park all day. Uh, that sounds, sounds like a really good way to spend 24 hours. Uh, Mayor Johnson, thank you for joining us on an honorable profession. Uh, we love having you as part of the new deal network. Um, I, I was looking it up. I think you might have the most, uh, idea submittals, policy ideas, submittals, uh, of any elected official in the network, uh, which is, uh, which is great because it's not only, not only means you're doing cool things in Dallas, but you're also sharing them so that the rest of us can try them in our communities. Uh, and so I ju we just all appreciate your leadership, your honesty, and your uh, ethical approach to public service. Well, I want to thank you for the time. And I also want to take this opportunity, if I may, just to thank you for your service too, and for all that you've done and what you've meant to the network and for doing this uh, podcast. And hopefully it'll help someone. I know I'm sure uh, from all the folks you've had on there before that, you know, people have benefited greatly from your work on this, but look forward to seeing what's coming next from you and supporting you. And uh, hopefully next time I'm in Santa Cruz, I'll get a chance to see you. You got it. You got it. Uh, yeah. We, uh, we got, we got some, we got some parks and some arts, uh, that, that I don't think they make the Bon Appetit list, but they're, uh, but, but, but I will definitely, uh, definitely have, have you over and, uh, we can hang out and uh, appreciate all the time and effort. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.